0: shalom you're listening to live internet studies this is episode number 199 my name is ariel ben lyman hanavi let's open with a word of prayer avino makino our father our king lord we are uh, so thankful that you have uh, made a way for us to be able to connect to each other across the miles Um, you've given us this time where we can gather together and to um, uh, discuss uh, your words of life to allow the Spirit to open our eyes and to give us further um, a revelation and further um, understanding of the text, so that we can be better equipped as believers. Um, we we know that this is not just a um, a fun time to get together and hang out with friends uh, via the medium Skype. I mean, although it is that, it's fun and it is. Cr- nothing wrong with hanging out with friends family members but um we need to understand that we need to be more um uh uh what's the word i'm looking for um being prepared uh you know getting ready because of the battle that we're in uh, constantly around us and because of the um uh, the urgency of the times that we live in, um, to be able to equip ourselves with uh, the Word of God and uh, to be filled with the Spirit of God so that we can um, be used and utilized for your kingdom and f- as be as your ambassadors in this, in this place. Um, there's so much nonsense that's available out there. Uh, the um, The world is growing ever darker and darker. Darkness is increasing. It's maturing as the end of the age draws near. But thankfully, your word reveals to us that light is also maturing. And um, as Daniel put it, they that shine as bright lights will... uh, um, I'm going to butcher the verse, but um, uh, we we know that we're going to um, experience more and more persecution, more and more... um, um, suffering in the name of messiah but that's not going to stop the light of messiah from shining forth that's the kind of the gist of what i'm trying to get at there so lord just continue to raise us up and and equip us and and give us a, a hunger and thirst after righteousness a desire to see souls brought into the kingdom and uh to see your name uh, go forth in power and in glory and we'll be be careful lord to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem yeshua amen Thanks once again, everyone, for joining me for these live studies. We missed the last two weeks. We had a, uh, I had my own personal illness uh, uh, that I went through, sickness, and um, then um, we had Thanksgiving break. And so um, I hope everyone's well rested. Uh, those of you who are with me in the live class. Thanks again for joining me during these live internet studies. This is an hour-long study broken up into two 30-minute segments. This is the first 30-minute segment, which is um, a study on Judaism versus Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? We're not really kind of pitting the two religions against one another. We're working from a um, a passage. Let me pull it up on your screen here. Taken from Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Since we're at the very end of our study, I'm going to read the passage at this time once again in its entirety. Let me read it for you and then tell you why we're having this discussion in, in this uh, particular study. This uh, part of your Bible, uh, if you're using the ESV like I am right now, because of the red letter edition, that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy the ESV over, say, NESB or something like that. Although, I, I, those are the two that I kind of go back and forth between. But ESV puts the words of Jesus in red, whereas uh, the NESB, at least the online version that I have seen, doesn't do that. And so, you'll see a lot of red on your screen. Um it labels it a question about fasting. And so there's an incident here. Let me read it for you, and then we'll tell you why the study is entitled what it is. Starting at verse 14, um, the verse reads, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, and Jesus says to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And then verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And that's the end of the story. We can find this... um story in the other two gospels we don't we don't find it in John but it is found in Mark and Luke and in Luke we're given more details in fact there's a part of the parable it's mentioned as a parable that talks about um no one after drinking um the old wine desires new wine because he realizes that the old wine is the best or the better of the two choices and so the reason we're having this discussion in this um um study is that these verses have been utilized by historic christianity to um, introduce this idea of jesus is replacing the old system of things the old judaism the old religious life style the old commandment keeping way of approaching god he's replacing all of that system with a new system of the new law of christ the new faith, a life of faith in in himself, um, the new way of not having to really focus on the letter of the law, but just allowing the spirit to move you and to lead you and to guide you. And so, the whole system has been given a name known as replacement theology. It goes by the name of supersessionism as well, or even some um, aspects of dispensationalism uh, convey the same thought that I'm um, uh, alluding to. And the idea is that there's an allegory that's supplied by later Christianity because Jesus didn't give us the explanation himself. The elements of the story are, however, that Jesus is questioned about why he and his disciples aren't doing something kind of basic to their day, which was Judaism had had come to the idea of that fasting during weddings or something to that effect. And so, um, uh he answers simply the question using the opportunity to plug himself into um the motif of wedding he says you know if there's a wedding then you don't really want to fast and mourn you you can do that when the wedding's over and when the bridegroom's gone but right now and then he plugs himself in he says i'm the bridegroom and you're the bride israel and there's a wedding that's taking place before your very eyes because i'm here I'm the long-awaited messiah is what i'm trying to say is jesus in, in jesus own words and as the bridegroom then um you don't need to worry about mourning and fasting right let's rejoice because i'm here and so that's his kind of initial answer and it's just kind of in your face common sense you know there's no need to even insert anything about i'm coming to replace the old with the new and uh, up rip the old system and anything of that, about that uh in his initial answer it's when Yeshua supplies the additional details where he talks about um, if you're going to patch up a garment, you want to use the right type of patch. Uh, and if you're going to transfer wine into wineskins, you want to make sure that you're doing it the right way. It's then that Christianity supplies their um, allegorical understanding of um, you know uh, the old system is incompatible with the new way of doing things that Jesus is bringing to the scene. Because in the um, parables, uh, he talks about some incompatibility issues between an old patch and a new garment, or a new patch and an old garment, I'm sorry, and the um, old wine and new wineskins and things like that. And and so Christianity sees this as an opportunity to say, Aha, see, Jesus is now telling us that the old and the new are incompatible. And of course, um, Judaism and the commandments have long since been a foil to be used by Christianity to demonstrate what is so wrong with um, the old way of th- doing things and to introduce uh, a, a kind of a contest between Old Testament and New Testament or Old Covenant and New Covenant or um, Law of Moses versus Law of Christ. And so those that's where the discussion has been going in my commentary. Which, of course, all of you who listen to my um, teachings on a regular basis know I disagree with that. Um, wholeheartedly disagree with the idea that Jesus was coming to bring something uh, radically new in replacement of Judaism or the law of Moses. What we did find, however, uh, is that there's an opportunity to see that Jesus is actually just trying to explain that either A, use common sense when patching up clothes and and transferring wine to wine skins, right? And when attending weddings, I use common sense or, and that's a good explanation. I've heard that on the internet. i looked it up in in, um, commentaries, and that's a good way to explain the whole story. Another way is that we saw that um, David Stern, uh, Messianic Jewish author, introduced the idea that Judaism is going to need to be reconditioned to an extent to allow Messianic faith to be introduced to it. We can still retain Judaism and the Law of Moses and and the way of life that was introduced in the Old Testament. But we need to now understand that the, the furthering revelation of the new covenant reality that Jesus is bringing via his own um, uh, sacrifice— is going to necessitate um, a a reformation from within Judaism itself. It doesn't mean we get rid of the system, but it means we do um, allow the Holy Spirit to come in and transform things. Um, Along those lines, we talked about the transformation of the lifestyle of an individual from old to new, you know, uh, when you go from sinner to saved, um, old man, new man experience, the things that Paul talks about uh, in his letters. And so, um, that's, also, part of the story that we do need to walk away with, we do need to understand that the overall thrust of Yeshua's message while he was on earth is that I've come to reform the old man into a new man. Right, The new birth is a reality that I'm explaining to you, Jesus taught over and over again, that unless you experience a new reality, you will not see the kingdom of heaven right? It's vital that we understand that as Jesus central message is that this reformation and transformation of the heart that can only take place when we surrender to the son of God and to the spirit of God. So that is absolutely necessary. We also saw in kind of concluding fashion that Tim Hague, um, uh, demonstrated even an even, um, more, um, kind of historically accurate, uh, uh, picture or, uh, interpretation that involved, um, uh, the first century phenomenon of of teachers choosing disciples. And Jesus, you know, he has the choice, because this is very early on in, in the story of Jesus' um, public ministry. And if you look at the context going backwards um, and, you, and kind of bounce that off of the other two renderings that show up in the other um, uh, Gospels, Mark and Luke, we see that we could draw a uh, interpretation where Yeshua is just basically giving us elements of that were common to his day that would equate to the idea of, when a teacher goes around choosing uh, disciples, normally he's going to choose from the academies, the schools, the rabbinic schools, the shivot, um, the, the, the places where students are studying the Word of God and things like that. At least that's how the normative Jews would have been doing it. But Jesus does something radically different. He goes around and chooses his his followers, his disciples from kind of the common people, the less thans in society, the people who were looked down upon, you know, the tax collectors, the sinners, the, the common fishermen. Um, you know, um, and so people couldn't really quite figure that out. Why was he doing that? And so we could say that the reason he's doing that is because he wants to pour his teaching into um wineskins that aren't um that haven't been, uh, say, kind of poisoned by the 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 the, uh, the the teachings of the day already. He wants he wants to use fresh wine skins that are ready to receive his his radical new um, new covenant reality and things like that. So um, those are just some of the different ways that we looked at. Let's turn straight to my commentary and go to my concluding thoughts. I might finish this tonight. If I don't finish it tonight, I will definitely finish it next week because the concluding thoughts aren't very long. And that'll turn us ready to, um, you know, start a brand new teaching, which I haven't exactly picked which one I'm going to pick. I've got lots of commentaries that I can work my way through, but let's work our way through our, through the, uh, the concluding thoughts. So this final section is entitled concluding thoughts. All right, here's what I have to say. This is my own commentary that you're seeing on the screen. My own thoughts. We in the body of Messiah, we need one another now more than ever before. And I open up with that um, statement because if we go with the replacement theology model where Christianity is doing away with Judaism, where it's a contest between the two religions, where historically the church has said, we don't believe there's really room for a Jewish expression of life, a following after the law of Moses and a following after the law of Christ. We don't see that there's room for those both of those at the same time. And so one has got to give, and the one that's gonna got to give is the one that um, has shown to be deficient. And of course, if you ask any Christian today, um, almost across the board, hands down, almost unanimously, you're going to find that the vote is going to be cast in favor of Christianity being the one that comes out on top. Um, we're new Testament Christians. We're not old Testament Christians. We're no longer under the law. We're under Christ, under the law of Christ. The law of Moses has been done away with. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. We no longer have to do it because Jesus fulfilled it. He kept it perfectly. So we don't have to try and keep it. Um, uh, it's not about the letter. It's about the spirit, um, etc. Cetera, et cetera, So the discussions are going to always, almost always to a T be in favor of, uh, if you have to choose between the law of Moses and the law of Christ as a Christian, what, what would you choose? If you have to choose between Old Covenant versus New Covenant, what would you choose? Keep in mind that there's an entirely separate discussion on the terms Old Covenant and New Covenant taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's writings. If we were to take that phrase Old Covenant and put it back into its um, biblical context, we would find that it's not even really a discussion about the law of Moses versus the law of Christ. It's a discussion about being saved versus being unsaved. But we're not having that really um, understanding at the moment. We're taking the garden variety, um, historic Christian understanding of the word Old Covenant to mean the laws of Moses, the way of approaching God through keeping the commandments, the Hebraically oriented lifestyle, etc. That's what they mean by Old Covenant. So, um, in this discussion about Judaism v. Christianity, if we allow for the dichotomy to be raised, this wall of separation between Jews and and Christians to be raised the way it happens in replacement theological circles, then the body Messiah remains predominantly um, unaware of the need for Jewish people to, to come to their Messiah, and yet many of them... Uh, to be allowed to freely retain their Jewish lifestyle. Particularly, this might be a discussion that's more relevant to religious Jews who are in favor of walking after the law of Moses, even though they're seeking after Messiah. You know, what do they do when they come to a realization that Jesus is the Messiah? You know, the spirit opens their eyes. We we pray, Baruch Hashem, that that would happen more and more. And yet, if they're greeted with this message from Christianity that they need to lay aside their Jewish lifestyle in favor of this Christian expression, because of the incompatibility between Judaism and Christianity, well, then the body of Messiah remains predominantly Gentile. It remains all always in a state where there's no expression of Judaism. There's no representative of the pairs. And there's no representative of the um, of um, uh, Israel al- along with the uh, bouquet from the nation. So uh, the body of Messiah, we need one another now more than ever, both Jews and Gentiles is what I'm trying to imply there. I go on to say, these days in which we live— are rife with darkness, and the whole of humanity outside of Yeshua is desperately wicked and hopelessly soaked in sin. Go back and read Romans chapters one and two if you don't understand the kind of the sentiments that I was drawing from when I um, wrote that particular uh, paragraph in my commentary, or just turn on the news, um, look, look at the, uh, the state of affairs in the world today, and you'll see that things are not getting better, uh, generically speaking, except for the grace of God. Ex- then the world would simply just have spun out of control already. Um, humanity is desperately lost and, um, we need the remedy known as new covenant. We need the remedy known as, um, salvation and, uh, the light of Messiah and the life that is found exclusively in him. Humanity cannot and never will be able to rescue itself from the dilemma that it's in. Um, it's the, um, it's the tea in the tulip of, um, of Calvinism's, you know, um, tulip T U L I P total depravity, the idea that man is hopelessly um, a sinner and that he he requires God to intervene in order for uh, the situation to change. So let's keep reading. I say now is not the time to tear each other down as fellow believers. Indeed, is there ever a good time to tear each other down? I I ask, kind of um um uh. It, uh Uh, ironically, in my question, in my uh, uh, commentary. And interesting that I mentioned that uh, tearing each other down, in this particular study, during the endeavor of going through the study of Judaism v. Christianity, I got some comments on my YouTube videos where people were actually accusing me of tearing at each other um, because I was critiquing Christianity's view of Judaism down through the centuries, because I was um, uh, pointing out, um some of the blind spots in historic christianity's view of the law of moses and and so a few people you know brought it to my attention hey why are you tearing us down as christians why are you throwing us under the bus don't you need to be supporting us and 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 building us up and blah 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 you know we are in the new covenant reality are you saying that we need to go back under the law of moses and so there's there's just a, a lot of room for misunderstanding, but I hope you guys aren't misunderstanding what I'm trying to say. We don't need to tear each other down. I'm not trying to tear uh, Christians down in this commentary. I'm not trying to say that Christianity is so grossly, um, um uh, what do we say, um in the dark when it comes to these issues on, on Old Testament and New Testament and things like that. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm actually trying to supply... A, um a thought-provoking um, discussion on the very relevant issue of where does the law of Moses fit in the Christian um experience once you come to, to a salvation knowledge of Jesus, um, can you retain a, an appreciation for the covenants of Moses for the, uh, the old Testament covenants, uh, for, um, keeping the laws of God, the commandments. Of course, I agree that we can, I think we should be able to, in fact, I think we should be pursuing Torah ob- obedience and Torah observance, but we're now doing it not under our own power under, and under our own desires, but under the power of the Holy spirit within us. Let me keep reading. Of course, I say we must capital M U S T demonstrate genuine love for one another we're talking about the mighty messiah if we are to be recognized by the world as followers of the master right it's jesus himself who stated in the book of john and i have a quote here quote by this all people will know that you are my disciples how if you have love for one another so we see there's no room to tear one another down we have our differences our differences of opinions about Is the law of Moses still relevant? And, you know, we may have to wait until Messiah comes to actually finally settle that issue in the body of Messiah. But to the best of our ability... We at least need to understand that there's no ambiguity when it comes to loving one another and demonstrating our fidelity with one another and messianic sympathy towards one another as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. We should not let these issues divide us. Um, yes, we can have our strong opinions, but at the end of the day, we're talking about, when we're talking about the body of Messiah, Jews and Gentiles in Messiah, this is an in house discussion, right? We're not talking about. Um, uh, keeping the law of Moses to be saved or something like that. Those are all um, misunderstandings of the purposes and the plans of God's words and uh, the historic covenants that, that have been um, preserved for us in the Bible. So let's not even uh, con- uh, consider that that's uh, an option on the table. Um the unity that we need to express as um as jews and gentiles messiah let me pick that up again in this next paragraph i go on to say it was not my desire to single out a few christian pastors and christian resources for the purpose of mocking them or exposing their supposed gross negligence in biblical exposition right you remember let me flash on the screen in post-production I've got we we had an example from um, Pastor John Piper, an an example from uh, uh, Pastor uh, John MacArthur, an example from uh, questions.org, and then an example from uh, Pastor David Guzik, and I I I think it's in that order, right? By the way, and so we had these four Christian, well-known Christian, and well-respected Christian resources that I utilized in my commentary. I could have gone on and on and on. The examples are are. nearly endless of this idea that the old is being replaced by the new, Judaism's out, Christianity's in, the law of Moses is out, the law of Christ is in, et cetera, et cetera. This idea of replacement theology is it's really uh, almost across the board in standard Christian circles. Of course, obviously, you're not going to find that position uh, taught in rabbinic circles or or modern Jewish circles because there's a healthy appreciation and respect and a love and loyalty for the law of Moses uh, in most Jewish um, uh, discussions and circles and things like that. So it's no wonder that in Messianic Jewish circles, you still have a healthy amount of desire to want to keep the law of Moses and keep um, the commandments and follow after the covenants and express your covenant loyalty in that fashion, you know, identifying with the national natural branches of Israel, um, obviously because it's a uh, part of Jewish history to keep the law of Moses. And it's, there's a, a, an, an, an interest in the um, lifestyle that Judaism has grown up around. So I continue to say in my commentary, um, my aim was to simply examine Matthew nine fourteen through seventeen, and based on popular interpretations of this passage that I mentioned, I found um, that I had to ask this particular question. Um, th- they asked this question: uh, Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? Of course, that's the name of the study. The short study was JVC, or Judaism v Christianity. Um, you know, I asked the question for a specific reason. Here's what I go on to say. First and foremost, I am asking the question, I as the author, as a religious Jewish man that has embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah of my Tanakh. And that's the important um, perspective that I want you, the listeners or the YouTube viewers or the iTunes listeners, I want you to know, or the readers, if you're reading this commentary on my website or uh, something like that, I want you to know that I'm approaching the question from from my own personal Jewish perspective perspective and the reason that's relevant is because again not it's not just that i have this vested interest in the law of moses because i'm jewish rather from a theological perspective as i read through the bible the tanakh the old testament and the prophecies about the coming new covenant reality that we now have the part of our bibles that's called new testament that we can now read about right it's not just a promise anymore it's now a reality But as I read through those prophecies where God was giving Israel a glimpse into the future what was going to be happening to her corporately, what I have found is that God was not insinuating some sort of bait-and-switch program where He's going to try to draw Israel into this relationship with Him and with His uh, Son who's going to be coming and then draw them into a supposed relationship where he's going to strengthen the Torah and help them to better walk it out, only to actually flip the tables on them and give them a new covenant where they don't have to be loyal to the Old Testament anymore, where they can um, basically disregard the law of Moses and not have to worry about keeping all those laws, right? Where Jesus dismantles that old program and shuts that, that thing down in favor of some New Testament, new law, new love, new whatever you want to fill in the blank. And so... It's not just that I've got this interest as a Jewish man. Rather, I believe this has far-reaching implications for properly understanding the Word of God as a whole, not just as it implies... um, uh, the Gentiles dealing with the reality of the Old Covenant within the New Covenant experience, but as it also directly impacts ancient Israel's understanding of the prophecies and what they can expect when the Messiah comes and fills them as a people group as, uh, with, with the knowledge of um, the true knowledge of God and the, the, the Holy Covenant, a Holy uh, Spirit experience. So um, go back and read those Old Covenant passages on your own and tell me, am I reading them wrong? Is God promising that he's going to fill Israel with the Spirit, circumcise their heart corporately, bring them to a knowledge of of Jesus as their Savior, only to turn around and rip out the law of Moses? Or rather, are the prophecies saying that he's going to strengthen their love and and, and um, devotion to the law of Moses, God's laws, and they'll be more Torah observant rather than less Torah observant, right? You, you go ahead and read the prophecies on your own. Pay a particular attention to, like, say the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those two books are pretty good places to park out. And um Ezekiel, uh, the latter parts of Ezekiel are also going to be good some place, good place to turn. Micah is going to be a good place to turn. Um, and um, you tell me, um is God doing away with the law of Moses via the these promises? So I go on to say, um, you know i embrace jesus as the promised messiah of the tanakh however i say i believe the question and answer um has far-reaching relevance just like, like i talked about for gentile christians as well particularly those seeking to further enhance their walk with yeshua how by embracing the ways of torah so we know that um the law of moses is not just a jewish document the law is not just for jews only that is a big no, no, a big misunderstanding of of the law of Moses. It was not just given to the Jews only for the purpose of them t- keeping it to themselves. Maybe historically we can say it was given to Israel, uh, but there's a reason why it was historically given to Israel only as a people group. It's because of the um, picture painted by the bride, the husband and bride concept. Right there's that wedding motif once again. God was calling a people to Himself, Israel. Um, He wasn't calling the entire world. He wasn't marrying Himself to the entire world. When when we read through the uh, Sinai covenant reenactment in the Book of Exodus, bringing Israel out of Egypt was a type and shadow to show God rescuing His bride and bringing her unto Himself and entering into a covenant relationship. That's the type and shadow um, on a corporate level and the purpose then was to fill her with his words and his spirit so that she could turn around and be a light to the surrounding nations a witness to everyone around her and fulfilling the abrahamic promises that to you all the nations of the earth would be blessed it was through israel and through um her walking out the, the lifestyle of god that was the purpose of just marrying israel it wasn't to the exclusion of the gentiles indeed the mystery of the gospel is that god would bring the gentiles into this covenant relationship through the relationship of his son, through the power of the Spirit, but not to the displacement of Israel, his bride. There's only one bride. There's only one bride and one bridegroom. If we overlay the motif of God and Israel, that's the bride and bridegroom there. But if we um, get a little bit more personal, when Christianity is brought into the picture or Gentile Christianity, we can say that it's Jesus and the and the uh, the church. But it's the same. Um, same picture. It's not two bridegrooms. It's not a dual wedding where we have a father and a son who are both getting married and they have their separate brides respectively, right? It's not a wedding where where you're looking up at, at the altar and there's God and he's marrying Israel. And on one side of the altar, and then there's Jesus and he's marrying a church on the other side of the altar. That's not the way the picture's supposed to be um, interpreted in the Bible. It's, it's the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of salvation, the mystery of the body of Messiah in that Jesus is very God, so there's one bridegroom, and the church is Israel, there's one bride. Understand? It's not two brides and two bridegrooms. So, um, if we can begin to properly understand that picture, then we will see that there's not a dichotomy between um, the law of Moses and the law of Christ. Uh, they fit together uh, the, exactly the way God had designed them to fit together. Let me conclude here. Let me see. Like I said, I think we might be able to finish this tonight um, since I've only got just a few more paragraphs left. And I've got about uh, I've got five minutes left. Um, let me read... Let me read one more paragraph here, and then uh, maybe I'll, I'll 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 conclude this next week. I go on to say, if Christianity, as a representation of the truth of the gospel, is to be relevant for unbelieving Jews, right? You've got to at least have a heart for um, wayward Israel if you're going to appreciate this discussion of um, Judaism v. Christianity, uh, replacement theology. If I mean, it's one thing to have a heart for the lost people. Um, for unsaved people, as you're going out on your daily uh, 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 work a day, you know, if you're a Christian, that's what I'm describing, you should have an awareness that people around you don't have a knowledge of Jesus and you should be praying for opportunities to witness to people, to share your testimony, to 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 share a kind word so you can draw someone into a conversation about God and about the gospel and about um, the biblical worldview. You know, f- meet people where they're at and sympathize with their situation um, so that you can um, pray for the Holy Spirit to um, uh, open up a discussion and a dialogue where you can perhaps maybe um, share the Roman's road or the four spiritual laws or something like that. But how can you have this discussion with an unsaved Jewish person if you've always been taught that the law of Moses has been done away with, that there's no relevancy for a Jewish lifestyle for a person who comes to believe in Jesus, a religious Jew is not going to have any of that discussion. He doesn't want to hear any of that. Maybe a secular Jew might because there's a kind of a disconnect between Judaism and um his religious life uh as a Jew, as a secular Jew. But as I say in my commentary, if, if our discussion is Christianity is gonna be relevant for unbelieving Jews who are seeking a genuine relationship with their God then such Christianity obviously must never water down the message of the true Messiah, right? You don't ever want to do that. As you're you're witnessing to Jews, don't back down when it comes to who Jesus is. Don't don't soft-pedal Jesus and put him in the closet just for the sake of trying to appeal to a religious Jew because you know that they reject Jesus. Don't ever do that, right? Stand your ground. Let the Bible stand its ground, stand firm and be bold like Paul talks about in the first chapter of Romans, right? He's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news of salvation to Jews first and also to non-Jews, right? Don't ever water down the message of the true Messiah, Jesus, but it also must be careful not to present a religion that is incompatible with a genuine, Torah-respectful lifestyle. And that is the unfortunate Kind of historic reality that gentile christianity has come to be um your average religious jew considers that christianity is a competitive religion to his own jewish religion when he thinks about christianity or catholicism or um, greek orthodoxy and things like that he can't help but come to the idea that that this religion of christianity um is just doesn't work with me with my religion because they speaking of christianity as a religious jew they teach that the law is done away with whereas we speaking of we as religious jews we have a high regard and healthy respect for torah they teach that um their their god jesus has now come to kind of take first place and our god it takes back seat they talk about how that they're these new people um, that God has chosen, this bride, the, the, the church, the body of Messiah, the body of Christ, and and they have replaced us as the old people of God uh, because we rejected Jesus and we um, didn't come on board with their gospel message back in the first century, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to be careful as Christians that we're, that that's not the picture that we're um, conveying to our um, uh, unsaved uh, Jewish of. Uh, uh, you know people that we friends and family members of uh, you know neighbors that we might encounter along the way i conclude by saying in this paragraph to be sure all well meaning bible students and i mean both jewish and gentile alike i think they would heartily agree that moshe's lifestyle was not incompatible with yeshua if you think about it um from a uh, just a common sense point of view why would the lifestyle that God gave to Moses be incompatible with Jesus' own lifestyle? In fact, if you ask most Christians the question this way, did Jesus keep the law of Moses, they're going to say yes. So um, the law of Moses is not obviously not incompatible with Jesus' own worldview because he kept the law of Moses himself, right? If it was incompatible, we would have Jesus... Um. Uh emphasizing the incompatibility would have would he probably would have highlighted the idea that wow i just can't keep my father's laws because they don't fit with my own theology as messiah or something like that right i go on to say um king david which is king david his lifestyle was not incompatible with yeshua's either um, I might add, I didn't say it in my commentary, but needed was Abraham. Even though he was pre-Torah, pre-giving Torah at Mount Sinai, the lifestyle that he led was not incompatible with that of the lifestyle that Moses would describe later on. Uh, but I do say that Paul's lifestyle was not incompatible with Yeshua's, right? Um, and so, all of these men that I mentioned, King David, um, Apostle Paul, uh, Papa Abraham, all these men were Torah observant. They were Torah respectful. Even with papa abraham there uh even though he was he shows up prior to torah um he would be torah respectful even before the torah was given he would have still represented a a, a, the lifestyle of a man who was completely um um surrendered to god and uh, doing god's will even despite his own hardships and his own um uh, doubts uh from time to time his own um uh, indecision when it comes to you know uh, sleeping with Hagar and things like that that we read about, but nevertheless, the overall thrust of the representative that we uh, are handed down, and that I say in closing, uh, when we read through the apostolic scriptures, is that Abraham is a model of faith. He's not a model of one who wavered and doubted and and uh, you know didn't keep God's laws and ways. He's a model of of salvation experience. Uh, go back and read Romans four and Galatians three. Uh, I go on to conclude by saying the premise that Judaism and Christianity are incompatible with one another, like we talked about in my study, in my opinion, it's a weak premise at best and a poor biblical exegesis at worst. We'll stop there tonight. I will read this final paragraph, the final two uh, paragraphs next week and draw the study uh, to a complete close. But that'll do it now for Judaism v. Christianity, or Judaism and, and Christianity incompatible with one another. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, My name is Aruban Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week, but if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also um, invited to head on over to tetzetorah.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together this is not the exhaustive list but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from and so um, have a look around and um, if you like what you're um, reading um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tatsy Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five minute video on the topic, uh, every day, twice a day sometimes and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, Make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, Hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching and make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, (laughs) via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at com, take a moment to scroll down to the very, very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine, is what I'm calling it, um, of... Uh, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat Uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the Internet this is the mechanism right here click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So, uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well, too. I mean, uh, God uh creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Pick up our study. We're actually at the very end of the study. We're in the excursus material, Ruach Within versus Ruach Without or Ruach Upon, I'm sorry. And it's a discussion about, not really Trinity per se, uh, it's really a discussion on, was the Holy Spirit with the people in the Old Testament? And what we've already talked about two weeks ago is this idea that we're introduced to the Holy Spirit's presence in the Bible uh, during the creation account, and the Holy Spirit hovers over the surface of the waters during the creation story. And um, um, I got a lot of likes on that first video, and so I created a video um, that talks about just that t- part about the Holy Spirit being introduced to us in the beginning part of the Bible. And so let's open our study with that video that that I made some time back. It's part of my short question, short answers series. So um, the video is actually um, entitled, let me bring up the uh, the thumbnail here. What does the Bible mean when it says the Spirit brooded? So for those of you with me in the live class, I hope you can hear the video. Um, if not, go back and watch it later on on my YouTube channel but let's watch this video first it's about a five minute video and then after that we'll jump into the uh, particular study ready here we go Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and E-Bible Copyright Tate State Torah Ministries, 2015 All rights reserved Here's our question What does the Bible mean when it says The Spirit brooded? What does that verse mean? Alright, we're going to take a look at some Hebrew tonight Let me read the English and then the Hebrew and then I'll explain Genesis 1:1 says In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Verse two says the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's look at the Hebrew on the screen as well. The Hebrew verse one says, "Bshit bara elohim, ve." Verse two says, vahaaretz haita tohu vavohu." V'choshak al panei tachon, v'ruach Elohim mirachefet al panei or panei hamayim. What does it mean that this spirit, v'ruach of God, Elohim mirachefet, hovered al panei over the face of the waters? The original Hebrew word translated as brooded, or hovered, in Genesis 1-2 is mirachefet, and the root word is rachaf, and it conveys a sense of shaking, moving, fluttering, as when a bird softly relaxes its flight to a light upon its young. This is a kind of a, a close proximity that's being described. And it adequately describes the actions of the ruach, the spirit, as he lovingly and closely watches over the created substance. How so? Well, this verb, although found three times in Scripture, is defined as, quote, hovering, And quote, only one other time in the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament. Here's the verse. He found his people in desert country, in a howling, wasted wilderness. He protected him and cared for him, guarded him like the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up her nest, Hovers, there's our word, over her young, spreads out her wings, takes him, and carries him as she flies, as Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11. This beautiful illustration of the protective power of the Spirit in relation to his children, Am Israel, the people of Israel, as they travel through the wilderness, reminds me of the same Spirit that hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation, hovering, protecting, providing life to that which it is protecting. Understand what I'm trying to say there. It's this idea of a closely guarding and watching, but a carefully doing so. That's this word, hovering. The word translated hovers in our above verse from Deuteronomy is the same root as the one that's used in Genesis 1-2. The haf. That's the same word. Now, check this out. In fact, to strengthen the connection between the two applications of the Spirit in Genesis and the Spirit in Deuteronomy, the Haftar portion to Genesis, a Torah portion is Isaiah 42.5-43.10. The Haftar portion is a prescribed reading portion from the prophets and the writings that was chosen by the ancient sages, the Jewish people, to complement the Torah portion, typically complementary in either its opening few phrases or the content. In this passage from the Haftor portion of Isaiah, we read in the opening 17 Hebrew words a summary of the first chapter in Genesis. The Hebrew reads first, 42 verse 5, Adonai nishmar la'am Thus says God Adonai, who created the heavens and spread them out, who stretched out the earth and all that grows from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Alright, I hope this brief explanation adds some insight to the verse in question. This excerpt was lifted from my Messianic Commentary to Genesis. You can see the video link in the upper right corner uh, for more information on watching that particular video teaching. Okay? Alright. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term, Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. So let's pick up the rest of the uh, the study here. We're in my commentary. Basically, the, the the written version of the commentary dead ends where the video stopped, where I read that uh, verse out of the book of Isaiah. So we're talking about this idea of Holy Spirit within people versus Holy Spirit upon people. And I say in my commentary that along with the foundational reference in Genesis one two, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, is also mentioned. In quite a few other surprising locations in the entire Tanakh, that is to say, the Old Testament. Uh, some rather familiar references are actually found in the story of Shimshon, who is Samson. And uh, you recall that's where we learned that he enjoyed a special anointing from the Ruach, from the Spirit. Read Judges 13 24 through 14 20. In these verses, in the, the the Samson account, the Holy Spirit is described as coming upon him powerfully. And the question is asked, but was but was the Holy Spirit within him? I have heard it taught that the Ruach did not enter into men until the New Covenant. That's generally the way the discussion is spun in normative Christian circles. Um, it's not trying to be demeaning or... Um, um, uh, Disrespectful of the Holy Spirit in any way when Christians talk about well, in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit was on people, but in the New Testament, Testament's in us, and therefore we've got this greater spiritual experience. And there's, it's kind of like they're setting up a dichotomy between the the the, the how the Holy Spirit was experienced. Um, so I go on to say my commentary. However, concerning the construction of the Mishkan, right, the uh, the portable tabernacle that we read about in the uh, the Tanakh and in the Torah, um, Bezalel, the master craftsman, is said to have been, quote, filled with the Spirit of God, end quote. Um, if we look at footnote number 50, drop down, uh says the Hebrew of Exodus 35, 31 reads, um, Yemalei Oto Ruach Elohim. He was filled with the Spirit of God and was filled with, he was, The Spirit of God. So, um, uh, you know, we can't always just default into the idea that the Holy Spirit was only upon people in the Old Testament. I think that's kind of an oversimplification or a kind of a... um, uh, kind of a, what we might saw a generalization, overgeneralization. But again, according to that rendering from the the 1917 JPS translation of the Tanakh, uh, the Holy Spirit was within people, or He was uh, He was in people as well. Uh, I continue in my commentary. The confusion, my understanding, the confusion is stirred up within the debate of in versus on. Right, talking about the Holy Spirit, that is a teaching which reports purports that in the Old Testament, the Spirit merely resided upon or on folks while in the new testament the spirit resides within or in a person and that's the discussion that we're having essentially right this is not primarily a um it's not primarily a a, a trinity debate or discussion even per se uh but we are talking about the holy spirit in this section um this false dichotomy of in versus on in my opinion firstly uh, seems to ignore the fact that scripture teaches us plainly that regeneration of a man cannot take place without the Ruach Kodesh. right? So what we're going to do is we're going to observe this language of this uh, passage, this verse from the Apostle Paul. Now, why am I bringing up this discussion about regeneration of a human or a person when we're having this discussion about the Holy Spirit being within versus without? Okay. There's a very important hermeneutic that must drive our understanding of the nature of the Holy Spirit as we read about Him in the Old Testament, and then we go on to further read about Him even more in the New Testament, and the experience that we as humans have with this Holy Spirit, particularly when we're talking about the topic of salvation of a human being. Let's let Paul speak for us first, and then um, I'll elaborate. Paul says, quote, But brothers, I do not want you to go on being ignorant about the things of the Spirit. You know that when you were pagans, no matter how you felt you were being led, he's speaking predominantly to Gentiles, by the way, you were being led astray to idols, which can't speak at all. But, but as I interject, the indictment or the description of, of a life prior to salvation is not only for Gentiles. Although his letters primarily addressed to Gentiles, the situation, the the um, condition of, of humanity that it's describing is um is true across the board for humans or for I'm sorry, for Gentiles or for Jews, it doesn't matter. Um uh being led astray to idols that can't speak at all is something that everyone can be a uh, uh, fall victim to him. so he continues therefore i want to make it clear to you that no one speaking by the spirit of god ever says yeshua is cursed right and then he gives these cryptic words and no one can say yeshua is lord except by the Ruach kodesh and that's a quote from first corinthians 12 verses one through three Okay, so um I'm not going to explain the passage completely relevant and germane to our study is the, the 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 fact that he talks about you can't say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit now he's not talking intellectually obviously I mean anyone can utter those words Jesus is Lord right you can be you can be a devil worshiper and, and utter Jesus is Lord even the demons recognize that Jesus is Lord so but what was Paul saying is that um, the genuine salvation experience that takes place uh for an individual, whether Jew or Gentile, takes place at the Holy Spirit level. It takes place when the Holy Spirit comes into you and causes you to recognize that Jesus is very Lord, that you can surrender your life to Him and declare Him as Lord of your life. Um, it's not that you're simply declaring that he's Lord. He's Lord whether you declare he's Lord or not, right? This is truth. Jesus is Lord even if no one ever admitted it or no one ever confessed it, right? He's Lord because of the reality of who God declares that he is and the, 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 the reality of who he truly is um, despite our blindness to the situation. So that's not what Paul's talking about. But in the salvation experience that takes place, Paul recognizes that um, regeneration can only happen from the inside out. It's not something that can that man can um bring about on his own. It's not something that he can muster up of his own strength. Man cannot save himself. The salvation experience can only be brought about from an experience outside of man, right? It's remember we talked about tulip again, the total depravity of human beings, and the idea that um God is the one who is the author of salvation. He must initiate the experience. God himself must draw you to him. God himself must allow your eyes to be open to see his son for who he truly is, which is Lord. Right. And so um, uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't um, take a back seat in this. It's front and center. He is the one that draws us into the salvation experience. So having said all that, now we can continue. Verse 1 Uh, seems as relevant today as it was back then. We believers seem to be ignorant concerning the work of the Spirit, and as a result, we go about bickering and arguing about topics such as in versus on. And sometimes this discussion only takes place in church circles. It doesn't take place in synagogue or or, uh, Jewish circles, by the way, the in versus on. This is entirely a kind of a Christian phenomenon. And also, it regularly takes place in messianic discussions where we're having this uh question about are we still under the law of Moses? Is it relevant for our lives? Kind of the um Judaism v. Christianity discussion that I had in segment one of my study. You know, uh are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? Um, the Holy Spirit was only on people in the Old Testament and that's proof that it's an an old dispensation or something old that was incompatible where the Holy Spirit couldn't enter into a person. But now that we're living in this new covenant, this is the way the discussion usually goes in church circles. Um, Now that we're living in this new covenant reality, we can now experience the Holy Spirit the way he was supposed to be experienced, which was on the inside of a person uh, and, and things like that. So um, I go on to say my commentary. Shaul's wish is that, with the help of the unified word of Hashem, the word of God, and the witness of the genuine and dwelling Spirit, that we and the body Messiah should all come to the unifying knowledge. And here it is that God has graciously granted unto us, as demonstrated by I say, sending us gifted individuals capable of disseminating genuine truth. To the body. So, um, again, if, if we were to look at, uh, uh, I'm somewhat exegeting the passage. Paul's talking about, I don't, I don't want you to go on being ignorant about the things of the Spirit. Um, you know, how would this ignorance be dealt with? God sends. Uh, equipped uh, leaders into the body to speak to the body and to uh, bring us into a a greater knowledge of how the body is put together and things like that. So Paul's expressing his concern uh, in that part of the passage. And then um, I go on to quote another uh, part of Paul. Let's see, this is Ephesians this time. Let's keep reading. Um speaking about leaders being brought into the body to help us come to a greater understanding of the truth of things so that we're not bickering as, 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 um, uh, sheep back and forth without a leader. That's not the way that God left us as a body. Rather, he sends us the ultimate shepherd, of course, is Messiah. And we recognize that in the body, but along with Jesus himself as the head of the body, as the, the ultimate shepherd, God also sends us. Um, uh, people, human beings, right? And so we're going to see a part of this described by Paul in Ephesians. He says, speaking of these leaders, that their task is to equip God's people for the work of service that builds the body of Messiah until we all arrive at the unity implied by trusting and knowing the Son of God at full manhood, at the standard of maturity set by the Messiah's perfection. So Paul recognizes that we've got some work to do, right? We've got some growth, we've got some learning potential, we, we're we not all arrived, we've not all come to the same place where we are um, handling the Word of God in a mature fashion. Some of us are better at this than others some of us grow slowly some of us uh need to go through the school of hard knocks over and over again some of us uh just hard-headed we don't get it some of us are stubborn some of us are constantly um flunking the tests and we have to take them over and over again in this school of of um sanctification that god has us in paul continues in in ephesians we will then no longer be infants tossed about by the waves and blown along by every wind of teaching at the mercy of people clever in devising ways to deceive. Paul's talking about the need in the body of Messiah for leaders and uh, preachers and uh, those who walk in um, apostolic uh, anointings and prophetic anointings and offices and and, um, um, Bible teachers and things like that. He continues in verse 15, Paul says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, We, as the body, will in every respect grow up unto him who is the head, the Messiah. And under his control, Paul says, the whole body is being fitted and held together by the support of every joint with um, each part working to fulfill its function. And this is how the body grows and builds itself up in love. And the quote is lifted from Ephesians 4 verses 12 through 16. And this is a good place for me to um, uh, draw this part of the study to a conclusion. We'll continue this next week. We're not done with this part yet. We're talking about this discussion of, was the Holy Spirit within folks in the New Testament as compared to Him merely being upon folks in the Old Testament? How can we arrive at a better and a more mature understanding of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible And how can we combat the ignorance that's rampant uh, uh, many times in our body of Messiah in Christian circles? And so that's the discussion that we're having right now. Uh, But that'll do it for Exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to liturgy for tonight. Um, The liturgy, uh, since we missed a week, I'm going to rewind, and um, I was going to read the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, but let's go backwards and read the English all over again, and then we'll read the Hebrew and the Greek next week. Leviticus 23, um, verses 1 through 4, is our... Uh, festival liturgy that we've been reading. And last week, or two weeks ago, I read verses related to the uh, uh, festival of um, tabernacles and things like that, Um, or not tabernacles, uh, trumpets. But trumpets is already gone, come and gone, and uh, Yom Kippur is already come and gone, so I'm not going to read those verses. I'll just read verses 1-4, through which is kind of the generic, uh, general, general, Introduction to the festivals in this particular part of the Bible. Uh, starting in verse 23, uh, starting in verse 1, I'm sorry, of chapter 23, right here on this side of the page where you can see me highlighted, um, Moses writes, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 2, Speak to the people of, let me just collect like that, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Verse 3: Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. And then Moses comes right back around again and says, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them, which kind of works as a bookend to the uh, first part, even though I know he's going to start introducing Passover, which we're not going to read. And as I mentioned, we're not going to read any Hebrew tonight. We'll save that for next week. Let's turn instead, I will read the passage that I read in First Thessalonians, which uh, talks about um, uh, the trumpet, uh, which, in my opinion, is related to um, this time of the year in which it's likely that these festivals are indicating the second return of Messiah. Thus, Christians would probably refer to this time period as the rapture, and um, linked to that... Monumentous event, which I do believe in the rapture. I just don't know how secretive it's going to be. Um, so you'll have a lot of Messianic teachers say, say that I don't believe in a rapture. I'm like, how can you not believe in a catching up, catching away, where Paul definitely talks about the second coming of Messiah and the resurrection, right? The day of the the the. the, the um the blessed hope that that Paul refers to uh, I just don't know how secretive it's going to be and it, I don't know that it's imminent. Uh, I think those are aspects that uh Paul probably didn't mean to indicate. Nevertheless in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 starting in verse 15 and we'll read 15 16 17 and 18 um it is a passage I believe that is uh speaking of um rapture resurrection and he uses language of trumpets, i.e. a shofar or a chazotzerah or uh, a salpins in the Greek or something like that, to indicate, we'll just say trumpet in English since um, that kind of generically captures both shofar and metal trumpet. Um, Paul is talking about using this instrument, God using this instrument to awaken uh, those who are asleep in the Lord, right? The um, This resurrection from the dead. Here's how Paul puts it, starting in verse 15 right there on that side of the page. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, right, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. If you want to call this the second coming, the rapture, um, the beginning of the day of the Lord, um, whatever you want to call it, Please don't say that it's not going to happen. As Messianic believers, we absolutely, certainly must be looking forward to this blessed day um, where uh, the Lord is going to return and uh, call us out. Um, and he, how does Paul describe it? for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise so this is a day of resurrection if you want to call it the rapture that's fine if you're uncomfortable with the using the r word i can understand but nevertheless please don't say it's not going to happen right if you're saying that the rapture is not going to happen or that the resurrection is not going to happen, then um, what are you looking forward to, right? Why did Messiah uh, become the first fruits of those who resurrect from the dead at all? What does Paul say in verse 17? Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Who's the them? Those who have been resurrected in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So it looks like Yeshua's feet don't need to touch the ground for this to happen. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then he concludes in verse uh, 18 by saying, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What words? These words of uh, the promises that Yeshua is going to return and gather us back to himself. So um, it's unfortunate that many in messianic circles in a a, um, move to try and distance themselves from uh, the imminent rapture or the secret rapture, are distancing themselves from the resurrection as well and so um i i do hold to a rapture um, uh, concept i just don't hold to a secret rapture nor would i hold to an imminent rapture i think there are precursors to this second coming uh this resurrection and i think there are things that we can look look forward to some signs that are going to precede it and uh i also think it's something that is going to be seen worldwide it won't be secret like suddenly people d- vanish uh you know off planet earth and and um everybody else is scratching and saying what happened right kind of like the you know the um kind of like the uh, thanos uh, you know, the avengers version of the snap right or the i guess they call it the blip where he snapped his fingers, wearing the Infinity Gauntlet, and you know, a half the people disappeared from the cosmos. Uh, is that what's going to happen in the in the uh, Rapture? You know, God's going to snap his fingers, and you know, half of people planet Earth are suddenly going to disappear, and the other half are going to be left going, "What happened?" Not quite. That's not really. That's Hollywood's take on it. That's not really the Bible's take. But we'll look at that a different day. We'll pick up the Hebrew and the Greek next week. But that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the, uh, the videos um, uh, that we're going to watch. Uh, because of the time that we're running out of, uh, we're getting uh, low on time, I think what I might do is um, only watch one of the videos. I was going to watch two. We'll watch one video, and then as a special treat to my... Um, uh, live crowd, will watch that second video next week. Maybe I'll put it together with the YouTube crowd. Maybe I won't. I'll look at the time. But either way, uh, but then after we watch the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. So you ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah teacher Ariel and E-Bible. Copyright Tatsy Torah Ministries, 2015, all rights reserved. Here's our question for us tonight. Did Jesus fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies? Sounds like an easy question, but let's take a look at the answer. The short answer, of course, is no. He did not fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies, at least not yet. Are there some he will fulfill when he returns? Well, you bet. He has to or else the prophets of old lied and the scriptures are unreliable. So we know that he didn't. That Jesus has yet to fulfill more of the prophecies touches on at least two important aspects about his witness to the Jewish people. Let me outline at least these two for you. Number one. Many Jewish people read their Tanakh, their scriptures, and then check to see if Jesus fits the bill for many of the things promised about the coming Messiah. And when they see so much yet lacking in fulfilled promises, they begin to lose any hope that Jesus is the one they should be waiting for. This is very important to Jewish people as they read through their Bible. You guys should understand that. As unsaved people, they don't readily see that the promises have been divided between his first and second comings. Make sense so far? So this is something we have to deal with. Number two, when Yeshua stated in Matthew five seventeen that he did not come to do away with the law or the prophets, it is important to realize that if we believers interpret and teach his term fulfill later in the verse, as Christ saying, now listen up, this is going to be the traditional Christian perspective. Yes, the law and the prophets are done away with since I fulfilled them. Then we as believers rip those precious prophecies and expectations right out of the Tanakh effectively stating that our dear unsaved Jewish brothers and sisters will never get a chance to experience them. In a word, we robbed them of blessings promised to them long ago. Have you ever stopped to think about it that way? The Messiah has many multiplied promises yet to fulfill for Israel, and you can bet that he will indeed make good on his word when he returns the second time around. This is what we should be telling our unsaved Jewish friends. Between his first and second comings, he will indeed fulfill all of the things that the Tanakh promised he would fulfill. So take heart, right? Put your trust in him today, and you too will experience all he has promised in the scriptures. Omen, amen I think that's a good place to say amen. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, Father, I'm blessing uh, you for the words that you preserve. I bless you for your Holy Spirit that you have sent to us. The fact that you have not left us without um, a guide, without a comforter, a uh, someone who will remind us and fill us with the words of the Messiah so that we can walk and live as ambassadors for your great name. The fact that you have demonstrated over and over again your intense love for us as our Father and that you're bringing us into this increased knowledge and um, a greater understanding of the truth. You've sent us leaders and um, uh, people in the body. You've established uh, men and women who uh, have an understanding uh, of your word and of spiritual matters so they can continue to help bring us into uh, uh, um, an increased Um, capacity to be used by you as we mature in our faith. Not that we're becoming more saved, that's not the picture that's being described by Paul. Rather, he's talking about this ongoing journey of sanctification that we all go through as believers. And for that reason, as we study topics such as Judaism versus Christianity, where we're talking about is the law of Moses replaced by the law of Christ, or we're talking about the discussions on the issues of Trinity, these, these difficult um, ontological matters of how we understand God as one and as three and things like that and um, the holy spirit's role help us lord to continue to um, support one another in this messianic endeavor we've got to realize that we need one another as jews and gentiles in the body of messiah as those who are weak and those who are strong we need one another so we can bring one another up in the body of messiah and uh, learn to strengthen one another and to forgive one another and support one another Um, Just help us, Lord, to continue to realize that this is our first and primary responsibility is towards one another so that the world can see that we um, are your disciples if we have loved one for another, the the, uh, passage of John that I quoted earlier. Thank you, Lord, for uh, continuing to take us along as a study. Uh, as students of the Word um, during these YouTube adventures or these iTunes adventures, no matter where we're finding ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for the students who join me week after week during Skype. Thank you, Lord, for um, continuing to bless me and heal me and to strengthen me and to support me um, financially and with the prayers of those who join me week after week. and Bring us back together next week, blessed and refreshed, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory Basham Yeshua. O main.